Well, this morning we have the, the joy and honor of getting to hear Psalm 2 preached by Luke Abendroth. Um, if you don't know him, uh, his dad, Mike, preached for us a couple months ago in Romans 1. A really encouraging morning. But today we get to hear from Luke on Psalm 2. And uh, the Abendroths uh, started uh, attending this church in the summers. They spend their, their summers here in Santa Cruz. About three years ago, we got to know them. And uh, it was awesome. When their family showed up to the church at that point, it like doubled the size of the congregation, which was, was really fun. Um, so instead of six people, we had like 12. Uh, it was awesome. But uh, the, the thing that I loved about their family uh, is we used to call them the loud singers. So when they showed up, not only did the number of people multiply, but the volume of our singing like quadrupled. It was amazing. Um, and that has just always been a real encouragement and an inspiration to me. It's something that if you guys read the email I sent out this week, that's what we should be doing. We should be gathering together and singing with all of our hearts. And so um, Luke and his family have just really uh, stoked that in not only me as a person, but in us as a church. And so I'm grateful for him and his family and really excited to have him come and preach the word for us today. So I'm going to pray for him and then he's going to come up and, and deliver the word to us. God, I uh, thank you so much for Luke and the Abendroth family as a whole. Uh, I thank you for just the joy that, that they have in you. Uh, I thank you for uh, their love of your word. And uh, Lord, I just thank you for the gospel that you have saved them with and the gospel that they preach and live out. Um, God, I ask that you would speak through him this morning, through your word. That you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your truth. And uh, Lord, that you would use your word this morning to mold and shape our hearts. So um, God, we give you this time and we ask that you would, would change us as a people, and as individuals. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Drew, for the kind words. I'm, uh, I don't have the greatest voice, so I'm just glad the Bible says make a joyful noise. It doesn't say it has to sound good. So that's the good news. So as you're opening your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2, I want to ask you a question. What is, the, what is the most important conversation that's ever happened? What is the most important conversation that's ever happened? Some people probably say it was the conversations behind uh, the forming of the Magna Carta, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. Maybe it was the conversation that uh, the U.S. military had on whether or not to drop the nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. These conversations had huge impact on the world. Maybe it was the conversation that you had with your family on the way here. I don't know what you guys were talking about, but I, I, I want to make the argument that the most important conversation that's ever happened is the conversation found in Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. So hopefully there, anybody ever asks you that question again, you think of this book of the Psalms. In Psalm chapter 2, the most important conversation that's ever happened. And there's a few different speakers here. There's a few different voices that we're going to look at. Four, actually, four different voices. And I want to just walk through the Psalm and hear the voice of these four different 
groups of people or people as they speak to each other, a conversation between God and man and Christ and even us that's going to impact our lives. So open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. And first, I'm just going to walk through this. I'm not going to read through the whole passage. I'm just going to walk through it as we go so we can kind of feel the, the unfolding tension of what's happening in this conversation. So first of all, look with me in, in verse 1 of Psalm chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you underneath the seat. We're going to hear the voice of the nations. First, we're going to hear the voice of the nations. Read with me in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We don't hear the the nations speak right away, but immediately in verse one, we hear that the nations are raging. Does that sound familiar? The nations are raging. You, look, you just turn on the news. You can watch the news all day today. There's riots in, on, on every side of the political spectrum. For every movement, there's chaos. There's buildings being burned. There's rocks being thrown at prime ministers. The world is raging. The nations are raging. And not only that, but this, this, this verse says that the peoples plot in vain. There's, there's this plotting going on. But that, that word plot actually in Hebrew is the same word used in Psalm chapter 1 for meditate. Blessed is a man who meditates on the word of God. It's this kind of murmuring. It's like you're muttering to yourself, just this kind of, not necessarily words, but over and over, just this like, this muttering, this kind of unrest. The nations and the peoples, the whole earth has this general discontentment with the world, this kind of angst, this frustration. And not only just the nations and the peoples, but, but look, at, look at verse 2. It's, it's the rulers and the kings. It's, it's, it's the appointed leaders and it's the, the monarchs, all the, the people of the earth. The idea of this psalm is not talking about specific nations necessarily. It's just all of the earth. It's all of the people. And at first we read this and we can easily just think of, like I mentioned before, the, the state of the world today. And that would be good to think of. But David here is writing, and and he experienced this as well. He experienced the Gentile nations conspiring against him. His own kingdom, there were kings going after his rule. But it's easy to exclude ourselves from this psalm. That we are included in these people that are raging and murmuring. And what does verse 2 say? That have set themselves and taken counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. All of the nation, all of the world, all of the the people throughout human history are born in sin. The Bible says no one is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And one of the things that this text teaches us is that the thing that that we dislike about God the most, the thing that we want to escape is In verse 3, his bonds, his cords. The idea is his yoke. It's his reign and rule over us. It's his law. Every one of us, including the, the nations that we see out there on the news, but including ourselves, we rage against God. We naturally want to get out from under his yoke and reign and rule over our lives. 
We see this all, all over the place in society. I've got to get out from underneath what the Bible says about sexuality. That the proper place of biblical sexuality is between one man and one woman in marriage. We want to get out from underneath what the Bible says about different roles for different people in the Bible, for children and parents and men and women. We want to escape this. There's this natural antipathy in our hearts, hatred towards God's rule and reign over us. And it started in the garden, right? You see Adam, even, even without his, his natural bent towards that, what did Satan do? He started to, to, to take Adam's focus off of the Lord and turn it onto the rule that he'd been given. Adam wasn't, wasn't encouraged by Satan to look around and see all the blessings that he had, Eve and the garden and all these things. No, Satan came and he said, you're under a yoke, you're under a burden, there's cords, you can't eat of every tree in the garden. You can't, you can't do whatever you want. You don't have freedom. It's just because God doesn't want you to be like him. And on and on you see throughout, throughout biblical history and throughout human history, there's just this general angst against God's rule over our lives. And outside of Christ, this is all of us. We all have this in our heart. None of us wants to obey. And even when we do obey, outside of Christ or do the right thing, it's often to establish our own goodness, to establish our own righteousness before God. So we see the nations raging and seething and murmuring to themselves and the kings setting themselves against God. And finally, with one voice, they say to one another, let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But as we heard today in Acts chapter 4, the greatest example and fulfillment of this passage is not found in the life of David, who's the author. It's not found in our own lives. It's found in the life of Jesus Christ. That even though the Lord Jesus, who you've been learning about in the book of Mark, the one who's gracious and merciful, who moves towards the broken, towards the sinful, towards the outcasts of society, the worst of the worst, the prostitutes, the modern day drug, or the ancient day drug dealers and homeless people, the people that Jesus pursues and goes after and forgives and loves, the people who, who he's gentle and lowly towards, even that Jesus, who's so merciful, who's so gracious, who for us believers, we can only be drawn to. What did people do when he came down to this earth? Crucified him. The greatest example that we, we see in, in, Acts, in Acts chapter 4, Acts 4.27 says, For truly, talking about, it quotes verse 2, and then it says, For truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, that's the nations, right? Along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is the natural bent of the human heart, not just the nations, and it does account for what the nations are doing today, but it's inside all of us. We're born in sin and we chafe against God. And we like to think in, in, in all of historical events that we wouldn't have participated in the worst things that have happened but the, in your own sin, in your rebellion against God, there's the seed of the crucifixion of Jesus. If you would have been present that day in your sin, you would have cried out, crucify, crucify. So we hear the voice of the nations and there's this great rebellion. Let us, let us get outside of this yoke, this bondage of God. 
But we're introduced to the, the second voice in this conversation, and the Lord's going to respond to this great cry of rebellion. Now, before he actually speaks, read with me in verses 4. I'll just read verse 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Or another translation is the Lord scoffs at them. You have all these people gathered together, all the nations of the earth in their, in their combined strength. Right? It kind of reminds you of the Tower of Babel. Everyone's coming together to build a temple or a building up to reach the heavens. And what does the Lord do? What's the Lord's response? Is he concerned? Is he worried? Is he thinking, oh no, what's happening on earth? What's happening in 2021? Is there a pandemic? Are there different people plotting? And there are all these different plans to seize power from this side and that side and different ideologies? Is the Lord sitting in heaven wringing his hands? First of all, what did it say? It says he's sitting. Verse 4, he didn't get up. He sits on the throne. And his, his reaction is laughter. Because it's like I, I always, sometimes I, I imagine, like when I go over to somebody's house and they've got some kids that are, you can tell they maybe aren't the most well-behaved. And you can tell that the adults in their life have always played into whatever they're doing, like completely. You know what I mean? It's like you, you can tell that they just think they're the strongest kid ever because like everybody they've ever punched, like every man that's come over, like reacts like falling on the ground. Sometimes I just decide I'm like appointing myself as the person to burst their bubble. I'm like, I'm just going to be like, wow, dude, that doesn't hurt at all. Like, you should start working out. But like, there's just this like general, like, I'm kind of like, okay, like sick. That really hurt. Like, you're very strong. It's just like this general attitude of it's so vain. It's so futile. It's so dumb what's happening. It's so weak that it's laughable. That's the idea here. Or, you know, that there's that famous cartoon picture where the like, dad's holding out his hand and there's the kid that's short and he's like swinging and he can't punch his dad. It's just this, like, this general, like, this is so foolish. This is so weak. This is so little and small, this rebellion against God, that his immediate reaction is to laugh. And then it says he scoffs at them. He holds them in derision. Like, are you kidding me? You think you're going to upset my plan on earth? You think that any of these plans and, and schemes are going are gonna to do anything? No, these, these plans are in vain, verse 1 says. And that's his immediate reaction, but then he actually says something. Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He may be laughing, but this is not a joke. This is the laughter of judgment. This is the fury and wrath of God. When people want to overthrow, they want to get out from under his reign and his rule and the reign and rule of his son, the Lord Jesus. He's going to speak to them in his wrath and terrify them. And what does he say? As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. There may be kings on this earth, there may be rulers, but there's only one real king. And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the king and he's been installed on Zion in history at a real place. That's talking about Jerusalem, the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament. That Jesus has been installed as the king of this world. And everything in history, everything in the world actually was created through him and for him. He's the king of all. 
and all of these different rulers and people and nations and even ourselves, we so often want to overthrow the one king. That's why the Lord responds in anger and wrath. You're not going to overthrow my son. The Father has existed in perfect love with the Son and with the Holy Spirit and the Trinity. If you attack his son, if you try to challenge his rights to kingship, he responds in wrath and fury. There's one king and there's one place where he's installed. This is, this is the, the height of offense to people who, uh, uh, like the pluralistic society that we live in. Especially in Santa Cruz, we have, you know, all, all, it's just your truth. That's my truth. You know, I'm going to have a little bit of this and a little bit of that and bring all these things in. But the Lord says, there's one place, there's one city, there's one holy, kill, holy hill, and there's one king. Now we hear the voice of the king. Thirdly, the voice of the king. I will tell of the decree, verse 7. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. What we see here is the voice of the king. The voice of the king, the Lord Jesus Christ. This can no longer apply to David because of the, the breadth of what he's going to inherit. But we hear the voice of the Lord Jesus, and he's telling us what God said to him. He's telling us, here's the decree, here's the mandate, here's the proclamation that I received from God. And what does he say? You are my son. And throughout the Bible, different people are described as being a son. In Luke, Adam is called the son of God. Israel is called the son of God in Hosea. So we have Adam and Israel are sons of God. Even the kings of Israel are sons of God. God has chosen to use the term son to to describe his representatives on earth. God's representatives on earth are often described as his sons, the people who represent him. But what did Adam do? Adam in the garden was given one command and he, he failed. Israel was given a command many times over and over. They're tempted and what happened? They failed. The kings of Israel, even the great ones, you, you get a king who, who seems to be expanding his rule everywhere and then he's a murderer or then he's got gold and horses. They fail. There's all these sons of God in history that are described as God's representatives. But what we learn from this passage, according to Hebrews chapter 1, is that there's a son, that the, that the only person who can be the true son of God is the real son of God. That all of these people that were called sons of God, they're not really sons of God. The only person who can really fulfill this role is the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. That he really is truly God's Son. That doesn't mean that God created him. This term begotten here is not speaking um, of birth, that God was created. It's speaking of the relationship between the Father and the Son. That the Father has always existed as a, in a relationship of Father to the Lord Jesus. And Jesus has always existed as a son to the Father. And the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And we can't, we can't understand all of these issues, but, but the point of this passage is clear that the Lord has finally said to Jesus, you are my son. There were these other leaders throughout time, but this is my, my real, my true son. This is the one. He's the real king. He, this is where everything ends in my son, the Lord Jesus. And he says, today I have begotten you. 
And that's what Hebrews 1, if you can look at it later, that's what it teaches us. That this, that this passage shows us, they quote Psalm 2, that Jesus is so much greater than the angels. But Acts 13 quotes this passage, and you don't have to turn there, but Acts 13 quotes this passage and says that this was fulfilled when Jesus rose from the dead. This passage was fulfilled when Jesus rose from the dead. That Jesus, yes, he's always been the son, but when he rose from the dead, that is when he was enthroned as king. He was always king as God, but now he's the human king. He's a descendant of David, and he is enthroned. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And Paul tells us that was fulfilled at the resurrection. And so, although this is some complicated um, theology, what we see here is that Yes, God has said, I set my king on Zion. Yes, he's angry and ferocious towards the kings of this earth and the nations who rage. But how did he install his king on Zion? What is the way that Jesus became king? It's through his death. Through his death and through his resurrection. The Lord laughs because even this crucifixion Acts tells us in chapter 4 that all these things happen according to his predestined plan. That even the people who were crucifying the Lord Jesus, they, some of them, were saved by what they were doing. That from an earthly perspective, they, they, they rebelled and they crucified the Son of God. But from a heavenly perspective, God was giving his Son over on the cross to pay for their sins. The, the, the great news of this passage is that yes the lord sits in the heavens and laughs and yes he does hold the leaders and rulers of this earth and all the peoples in derision but the way that he's appointed his king is through death and resurrection it's through redemption that jesus died for sins and he rose again and that's how he's the king and because of that the lord says to him ask of me and i will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Yes, there's judgment here. We see this breaking with a rod of iron. We see the potter's vessels are dashed and broken. But what does this passage remind you of? Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. I thought of Revelation 7. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Yes, the nations will be the heritage of the King and he will shatter those who are stubborn and who continue in their rebellion against God. But this King the way that he was set upon Zion was on a cross. What he was doing on that cross was paying for our sins. And the way that he was, and the, and the time that he was declared that he is the ultimate son, he's the ultimate ruler, was through his resurrection. This is good news. Yes, this is a rebuke to the nations. Yes, this is a rebuke to our sinful and stubborn hearts. But the Lord Jesus is a king, yes, but a king who sits on a throne of grace. He's a king that we can approach boldly with confidence because the way that he rules, think about this and we'll talk about this near the end, but what do the kings say? They're like, get me out of this yoke. Get me away from this burden of God's law. What, what does Jesus say about his yoke? He says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. 
His commandments are not burdensome for us, John says. The, the problem with these kings is, yes, they, they, they naturally hate God. They're naturally rebelling against God. But they, they think that, that the, they don't understand the, the, the true character of the Lord. And so we've, we've heard the nation's voice. We've heard the voice of God as he rebukes them and tells them of his king, the one true king, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that king himself speak and, and tell that he will have all the nations as his inheritance and that he will judge those who do not obey. But finally, we see in a fourth voice, and it's the voice of the narrator. It's the voice of the psalmist. And he's going to tell us how we should respond. He's going to tell us how we should respond. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. All of, all of these things are true. The nations are raging. The peoples are plotting in vain. There's unrest, not only in society and in our world, but in our own hearts and in the hearts of all unbelievers around us. But the Lord has set his king on Zion. And even to these rebellious, wicked kings, there's an invitation to come. There's a free offer. We see the grace of the Lord in this psalm so clearly that even these wicked kings and rulers, even the wicked kings and rulers who crucified the Lord Jesus Christ were invited to come. Come, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Or Isaiah, there, there, we quoted um, Isaiah 55 earlier, come, buy and eat without money and without price. Eat and drink freely. There's a free offer here. And verse 11 says that we, we must serve the Lord with fear. These kings are told, serve the Lord with fear. And, and that's what's expected. You hear all these kings rebellious and we think, okay, serve the Lord with fear. You need, you need, to, you need to forget your rebellious ways. Stop trying to get out from under the yoke of, of God's rule. And you need to start serving the Lord with fear. And that's true. For us who are Christians, we understand that easily. That, that there's a fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. There is a, a healthy fear that it is the God, the living God with whom we have to do. That we have a relationship with the God of the universe, a God who judges and condemns people and a God who saves people. But we also as Christians understand when, when the author says in verse 11 to rejoice with trembling. That it's not just a service of the Lord with fear. We haven't received a spirit of fear to fall back into slavery we receive a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That we're actually able to rejoice that there is a, a fear of, of God as our Father. But we don't have a, a fear of God as our judge if we come to Him. We can actually rejoice. And that joy has, has trembling included. But there's something specific that we have to do. All of us. The kings of the earth, the nations of the earth, the rulers of the earth. There's something more specific. It's not just serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. It's not try to start obeying God's laws and have a good attitude about it. There's something specific that God has called these kings and these rulers of the earth, but also all of us to do. And what is that? Verse 12. 
kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. We've, we, there, there's one commentator spoke of how we all are united in our one voice against God. All the nations, all the rulers, all the people, each one of us here, we have this one voice united against God and against his son. And he said, instead of speaking, we should apply our mouths to better use at kissing the feet of the son. We, we should stand before God silent, knowing that we deserve his judgment. How should God respond to people? How should God respond to us? He created us upright and good. He gave us good gifts and we all fell in Adam and we all continue to fall day by day today. We all continue to chase our own rebellious desires constantly. The Lord would be completely just if he had never offered a way of forgiveness, but had only said, I have installed my king on Zion and he's coming to shatter everyone with the rod. That would be completely just of God to do. And yet he's gracious and kind. And the very way that he installed his king, the way that the, the king of the universe was installed was on a wooden cross, suffering for our sins. Maybe you don't know what was happening on the cross. We hear, we hear about the cross all the time. But, but the way that Jesus became the king was on a cross. But, but what was he doing on the cross? Why was he dying on a cross? It's such a common symbol that we see today. But what Jesus was doing on the cross is he was taking all the punishment and judgment and wrath that we deserved on himself. He was absorbing all of the judgment that you deserve as a Christian. He was taking that for you. Jesus took names to the cross. He thought specifically of believers as he went and died on the cross for sinners. And all of this judgment that these kings and these nations deserve, Jesus suffered the full weight of. If they would only believe, if they would only kiss the Son. This is offered to you. This is offered to everyone. This is offered to the rulers and the kings of this earth as well. Kiss the Son. Come to Him, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. There's a time, and now is the time, today is the day of repentance. The, the, the Lord will not always have an open offer of forgiveness for anyone who comes to him. One day he will come, and he won't be the humble servant coming on a donkey in Nazareth. He will come on, on, a, on a white horse to judge every single person that's ever lived on this planet. And he's going to judge them based on his standard of perfect obedience. That God demands of you, his yoke of you, his burden and cords on you, they actually can be a burden because Jesus said you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Jesus' brother James said, for whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. All of us stand condemned before God because he demands perfection. And yet no one is righteous. No, not one. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all said to God, shaken our fists and said, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. If we reject the son, there's no hope. He'll be angry and will perish in the way and his wrath is quickly kindled. It'll be kindled in but a moment. We don't, we don't know the day or the time or the hour that he's coming, but it could be today. And this passage ends with 
a, a beautiful sentence. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Taking refuge is one of the most common ways that the Old Testament describes saving faith. It's like if you were in a thunderstorm and you run and hide in a cave. It's, it's you're, you're, you're escaping the elements and the weather in this little uh, oasis of safety in some type of cave. And it's one of the, the best analogies for putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Because you stand condemned before God. You stand under his wrath because he's going to judge you based on his perfect standards. There's no refuge from the Lord Jesus, one, one author said there, but there is refuge in the Lord Jesus. There's, there's safety in the Lord Jesus and he offers himself freely to you. If you'll come and put your trust in him, if you'll come and admit I'm not a good person. I have sought to escape the yoke and bondage of your authority and establish my own authority. I've tried to establish my own righteousness, but I know that on my own, I deserve judgment and hell. But I'm putting my trust in what Jesus has done. I'm taking my refuge in him. I'm taking my confidence in the king that his death on the cross and his resurrection is secure. That it was, when Jesus said, it is finished, I say amen to that. I'm not going to add any of my own works. I'm going to come and take refuge in the Lord Jesus and what he's done on the cross. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. If you're not a Christian, unbeliever, please take refuge in the Lord Jesus. One day you will stand before God. But there's refuge offered for you. And, and when you kiss the son, when you come to Christ and embrace him in faith, we, we, we set out on a life of serving the Lord with fear, rejoicing with trembling. Isn't it such a joy for us Christians to serve the Lord? To be able to, to spend time with the Lord Jesus, to have a, a relationship with the God of the universe? That although we're afraid of his power and we have a, an awe and respect of him, we can rejoice because we're confident that our sins are forgiven. That he has been installed upon Zion. That he has, has been begotten by the Father. That in the resurrection, everything that he promised is true. That if he rose himself from the dead, we can trust everything else that he said. This is such good news. So unbeliever, won't you come? Kiss the Son. Take refuge in him. Put your confidence in Jesus because it's your only hope. And for us Christians, let's be encouraged that this, this term blessed really means happy. Happy. Happy are all those who take refuge in him. You can have joy and happiness in the midst of everything that's going on today because we're taking refuge in the king, the one true king who reigns from heaven today, who everything happens according to his plan, even his own death and resurrection. We can trust him. He, if, if, he, if, if the father didn't spare his own son for us, how will he not also, not with him, freely give us all things? He's going to give us everything else, and we don't have to be sad. We don't have to be worried. We don't have to be concerned about what happens in the world. We, we, we know the secret of all things to being content, and it's found in the person of Christ. Blessed, happy are all who take refuge in him. This is such good news. This is a great psalm. Yes, it's a psalm of judgment. Yes, it's a psalm establishing that Jesus is king, that he reigns, that he's in control. But this king who is so severe with his enemies offers to make his enemies friends. 
This is, this is good news. Let's close in prayer.